Our text of emphasis this morning is found in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, and verse 1. And it reads there this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his God, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God, and he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh God, as we consider uh, your word, we pray for a clear understanding of who you are and who we are. In Jesus' name, amen. We have a skeleton crew today. I don't know if you noticed that or not. I mean, there's Kyle. Kyle's running the sound today. He was everywhere. Kyle's everywhere. Kyle, thanks for your work today. Uh, you know, we're almost ready to start the Advent season. Can you believe that? Uh, next week, we'll be uh, sharing together in the beginning of the Advent season. In fact, Greg's wife, Sarah, is going to be preaching for us December 2. going to be a good time together as we uh, start uh, comprehending very specifically the first coming of Jesus. But before we go to Advent season, we want to spend this last uh, week wrestling with our fall sermon series, The Essentials, those beliefs that make Christianity uh, Christian. And during this uh, series over the last seven weeks, we've considered questions like, uh, what is sin? What is law? What is God? What is the church? Who is Jesus? And what is atonement? And you can go to adventhope.org where you can find all of those messages either on podcast or on uh, video. And uh, today, though, we turn our attention uh, to the question, what is the future? What is the future? Now, our text of emphasis, which is found, again, in the book of uh, the Revelation of Jesus, uh, comes from one of Jesus' disciples, uh, John, as he's uh, describing a vision that he's receiving from an angel or a messenger of God. And he says that he saw a new heaven and a new earth. Now, a fundamental idea of the future in Christianity is the concept of, of heaven, what Christians call heaven. And uh, in John chapter uh, 14, we actually get Jesus himself referring to this idea of heaven, this idea of the future. And he says there that, and he's talking to his disciples, that he's going to go away, and when he goes away, he's going to prepare a place for them. And then he gives this great promise, I will come back and take you to be with me that you may be where I am. And so it's from these words of Jesus and from other places in uh, the New Testament and the Old Testament that uh, believers have come to get an understanding of the future, and specifically the future that is described as a heaven. And so for the entirety of the Christian age since Jesus teaching himself, Heaven has been the compelling feature of the 
Christian belief system, having the idea that at some point in human history, uh, believers will be uh, escorted away to what is often thought of as uh, the vacation spot of your dreams, heaven, the vacation spot of your dreams. And so we often think of uh, Jesus like a high-end uh, travel agent who is off uh, preparing a place uh, for us to go with uh, lavish residences and preparing all of the, the food and everything that we're going to enjoy. And at some point, he's going to uh, come back and he's going to sweep us away um, and we are going to be an elect group of people who get to enjoy all the lavish ideas of the future of the world to come of uh, heaven. And so, uh, with that in mind, in 2014, the, uh, the Pew Research Center did a religious landscape study in the United States and found that 72% of Americans uh, believe in the idea of heaven, which they defined as a place, quote, where people who have led good lives are eternally rewarded. Where people who have led good lives are eternally rewarded. 72% of Americans believe that such a place exists and that that place will uh, be introduced at some point in the future. Now, the implicit idea of heaven is a promise that all of your, your dreams or all of your wishes will be uh, fulfilled. And so as, as that promise has been somewhat promoted, uh, one's imagination might uh, soar with a view of heaven. Uh, we think of being able to, to stand on, a, on, a, on a, what would, would have been a dangerous precipice, but to be able to launch oneself off that precipice and instead of falling to your doom, being able to, to soar with the, the, the birds. That maybe that's your, your, your ultimate view of what, what might be one of the advantages of the future of uh, this, this idea, this place called heaven. Or maybe your ideas of living in a... Uh, of a virtual zoo of formerly endangered animals or animals that were endangering to you but no longer that you can do we have animal lovers here any of you animal lovers does that sound intriguing to you that you can hang out with the the the, the animals of your of your dreams um, or maybe maybe your dream of, of heaven or the, the the future is a place where you can eat whatever you want to eat I mean the most delicious of of, of of foods and fruit that is just so mouth-watering that it, it just drips from your lips. We have any foodies here? I mean, this is, this is New York. We're foodies here. You know, this, this, is, this might be something that, uh, that one would look for when they think of this vacation a spot of your dreams that Jesus is going to come and he's going to sweep every way, everybody away from, or two. And uh, all of this, of course, is based on the idea, according to Pew, that uh, we... Uh, gain this by our good deeds, and we are being eternally rewarded. Now, uh, what's interesting, I think, is this, that uh, more and more, this idea of heaven or the future or the world to come uh, is becoming uncompelling to a lot of people, especially some of the unique features advertised by uh, Christians regarding heaven and the future that 
today actually don't sound all, of the, all that unique. So maybe as we finish this uh, series on the essentials and we think about the Christian concept of the future, we can wrestle with this question, why is it that the Christian view of the future has become increasingly uncompelling for a lot of people? So even though a lot of people leave, believe in the idea of heaven or the world to come or the future as described in the Bible, the idea of it has become increasingly uncompelling. Why is that? I'm going to offer you three suggestions. Now, there are more. You can come up with some on your own, but here are three suggestions as to why the Christian idea of the future has become increasingly uncompelling. Uh, first of all, technology has facilitated an unprecedented growth in the ability for us to experience enjoyments of this world like we've never been able to experience before. We have, first of all, access to more knowledge than at any other time in human history. Many of you have a phone in your pocket that you could go on right now and you can answer almost any question that you could possibly uh, think up, including what are the most amazing places in the world that you would like to go to or uh, visit. And so that leads to the next reality that we can travel, if you have the time and you have the financial resources, to almost any place in the world in a fairly quickly quick matter. Avon Hope is a traveling congregation. We love to travel, and uh, we're all over the place. In fact, again, many of our regular Avon Hopers are at some other place in the country or the world on this Thanksgiving break because we like to travel, and we as humans can do this uh, easier than any other time in human history. Uh, there, was a, there was an announcement this week by Qantas Airlines. Do we have anybody from uh, Australia here? No Australians here today? Qantas Airlines announced this week that they are going to do the first uh, non-stop trip from London to Perth, Australia. This has not happened before. 17 hours, 9,000 miles. That's a long time on a, on a flight. Uh, Sarah and I, when we were much younger, we did a, a, a Beijing to Detroit. That was a long flight. Sarah, how long was that? I don't remember. It was long. It was more than 10 hours, a long time. It's miserable, it's terrible. So 17 hours, 9,000 miles, but this is, this is called the kangaroo route, by the way. Uh, back in the day, in 1935, when they first started making flights from London to Australia, it took 12 and a half days to fly. You know, we think of uh, airline travel as being quick, but in 1935, when the first flights were, were going from London to Australia, it took 12 and a half days. You had to multiple flights. One of the flights crashed in the ocean, so they came up. They decided, why don't we use planes that can also go on the water? So they had boat planes. So you took two boat planes, uh, you took another airliner, you took a train, and it took 12 and a half days to get from London to Australia. But now, now for the first time ever, you can take 17 hours, you jump on a plane from London to Australia, you're there. But of course, you know, there are other places that you can travel quickly, and so we have the opportunity to get around this globe faster than ever before. We can get places quickly. And so with the proliferation of experiences that we as humans have access to, this has uh, affected the compelling nature of the idea of a world to come. Computer scientists imagine a time in the not-too-distant future when even 
uh, virtual experiences will start uh, filling in for our uh, needs and desires and that we'll be able to do things virtually that seem almost uh, real and that that is not too far off in the distant uh, future. And so uh, the compelling nature of the idea of a world to come of, of heaven has been affected by our ability to do some incredibly awesome things right here and right now in this world. Secondly, as we think about this question, why has the Christian idea of the future become less compelling? Well, because a lot of the Christian advertisements for the future feel actually uh, rather dull, if we're honest with ourselves. I mean, I Google searched uh, heaven, as of course you have to do if you're going to talk about a subject, you've got to Google search, right? So I Google searched uh, heaven, and so then I went to the image search in the Google search. By the way, today's message is brought to you by Google. I Google searched heaven, I went to the image search, and I searched, and almost every inch, uh, image was exclusively cloud-based. Now, I don't mean like cloud-based, like in the, in the cloud, like it's stored on the cloud, but I mean it was like images of clouds. Uh, now, I like clouds. I'm a fan of clouds. Are you a fan of clouds? Yeah, clouds. I'm a, yeah, clouds. I'm a fan of clouds. Uh, but there's only so many clouds that I can Im imagine that really inspire excitement uh, in me and before I fall into a daze of, of, of boredom. But, you know, the, the, classic, the classic view of the, of the world to come, of, of, of heaven, is, you know, people leisurely hanging out on, on clouds. I mean, that's kind of our funny, you know, eating grapes on clouds. That's the classic, you know, image of the world to come. And the reality is that just, first of all, the, quite frankly, the idea of, of leisure is interesting for a little bit, but endless leisure isn't all that compelling anymore. I mean, uh, some of you here have really interesting and compelling uh, careers that you're really excited about. Um, many of you have very active social lives, and you, I know that because you post them on social media and I watch them, and it's very interesting what you're doing. So interesting. Very interested in what you're doing. Um, Some of you are traveling around the world, as we've already talked about. I mean, you guys are interesting people, and there's so many interesting things that you're doing. And the idea of spending eternity leisurely hanging out is just kind of dull. And so the Christian idea of the world to come or the future or, or heaven can seem rather uh, dull when we uh, leave it to just the realm of, of being uh, leisurely. Uh, finally... One of the reasons why the Christian idea of the future is increasingly uncompelling to a lot of people, uh, Christians themselves aren't a really great advertisement for being in a place with other Christians. You guys with me here? Uh, I mean, nobody wants to spend eternity with a bunch of self-righteous know-it-alls. Have you spent a lot of time around a know-it-all? It's, it's not fun. It's not fun, especially self-righteous ones who, who feel like that th this existence is their reward for leading a, a good life. That is not, not uh, compelling. Unfortunately, unfortunately, many 
Christians are seen by others who are maybe not a part of the Christian faith as being kind of know-it-alls, kind of, kind of, kind of, kind of cocky, if you will, kind of self-righteous. And so this isn't really a great advertisement for the idea of the Christian view of the future, of the world to come. I mean, who wants to spend time, not just time, eternity, hanging around with people who think that they know it all and who love judging everybody uh, else. That's not uh, compelling. And so, again, this is increasingly the prominent view of people who are not Christians of those who are Christians. And so that's a challenge. And so if these traditional uh, arguments for uh, the future, a future that is um, this idea of heaven are in, un, increasingly uncompelling to people. Is it possible that uh, Christians ourselves have uh, missed the point of what the idea of Christian of, of heaven, what the idea of the future really is? That we've missed the point of the entire thing. If if the idea that it's you know some lavish uh, uh, vacation is not compelling anymore because we, there's so many awesome and amazing things that we can do very quickly here on, on earth. If, if that's not compelling or, or uh, the idea of spending eternity in leisure isn't uh, compelling and, uh, and hanging out with other Christians isn't in itself compelling, then, then what is it that might be compelling about the idea of heaven? Because the reality is heaven is an idea, is a, is a concept, and is a promise that even Jesus himself uh, promoted. And so heaven is important, but maybe, maybe we've been missing the point by emphasizing it as this leisure experience or this thing where we're going to get to do all the things that we can't do here on this, this planet, or even the idea that we're all going to get to hang out together. These are increasingly uncompelling, and so maybe we've missed the point. So that leaves us the question, well, what is the point? And that's where we go back to our text of emphasis today. Again, Revelation chapter 21 and verse 1. Our text of emphasis says, and again, this is John. He's an apostle of Jesus. He worked very closely with uh, Jesus, and he is now a prisoner, we believe, on an island out in the Aegean Sea. And uh, he has this vision from a, a messenger from God, an angel, and he is articulating what he saw, what he sees in this vision. And he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and then there was no longer any sea. Now, I don't know about you, but Revelation chapter 21, verse 1, bums me out just a little bit because I like the sea. Do you like the sea? I mean, you know, New York is a beach town, right? I mean, we're like, at any place you are in New York, you're only about an hour or 45 minutes from the ocean, and there's nothing better than going to the ocean. Are you guys ocean people? Ocean people? All right, I know we have some people who are literally from an island in the ocean. You're ocean people, and you can't wait to get back there. We met somebody at the 9 a.m. service, and they were, had a very large jacket on because they were from Antigua. And in Antigua, it is very warm right now, and here it's not. And uh, so they were, she was very anxious to get, get back. But in, in Antigua, you enjoy the ocean. Here, we enjoy the ocean. I like going to the sea. But here's the thing. If you were a prisoner on an island out in the middle of the Aegean Sea with no way of getting off that island and being separated from all of your loved ones and family and friends, the sea meant 
separation. It meant that you, there, was, there was this insurmountable thing between you and everything that you cared about. And for John, that meant, we can imagine, family and friends and even his work, even his career, even his ministry, that he was, he was separated. He was on an island, and there was no way off. And so the promise of Revelation chapter 21 and verse 1 is that, A, in the world to come, there's not going to be any more sea that separates. No more uh, separation. He continues, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. God will dwell with his people. This is, again, a reference to the idea of a separation. I mean, since the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3, the, the, the narrative of the biblical story is one of separation, that there was separation between God and his kids, God and humanity. But Revelation chapter 21 says, in, in John, as John is articulating this vision, that, hey, a time is coming when there's not going to be separation anymore. There's not going to be any more sea, but there's also going to be a, a, a time when God dwells with his people, that he comes and he lives with his people. By the way, the, the words that are translated as heaven in the Old Testament and New Testament really get down to the idea that heaven is defined as the place where God is, the place where God is. And so the idea here is that the place where God is now comes to where the people are that God is going to dwell among his people, that there's not going to be separation anymore. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. I mean, it's hard during this week when a lot of us have spent time with family that maybe we don't get to see very often or friends that we just don't have time for, that we took a, a day and we celebrated Thanksgiving uh, together and we ate lots of good food, and we had a good time together. But the most, most important is that we were, we were with people. We were with people that we, we uh, care about. And I know that wasn't the case for everyone here, but for many of you, you spent time with people in, very, in a very particular way that are, are meaningful to you. And so as we think here at Revelation chapter 21, we think about God who is anxious to be with his kids. My parents drove all the way from, uh, from Michigan why did they do such a thing? That's a long drive, 12 hours. Because they wanted to be with their kids. Now, what they really wanted to be with the grandkids. But, hey, we'll give them that. So they were anxious to be with their kids and their uh, grandkids. And this is the same imagery that we get from God here. In fact, you could make the case that Revelation chapter 21 is really the culmination of the entire history of the Bible. That God is, is getting back to the way he wanted things. What, things were lost in Je Genesis chapter 3 and the narrative of God's relationship with his people was broken. But Revelation chapter 21, God's like, no, no, no. Now I'm going to dwell with my people again. All things are going to be made right. God dwelling with his people. We read and, and continue to read in chapter 21 verse 4. And John says that he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. This is the good news. I mean, it's one thing to talk about God living with his people, but that, even that's kind of a bummer uh, with, with the, 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 the shadow of death hanging over our heads, right? 
the shadow that this could come to an end. I mean, when you're with a loved one, when, when someone you haven't seen for a while and you're together with them, but you know that that could end because of tragedy. There's still that, 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 that sorrow there. But verse 4 says, hey, not only is he going to dwell with his people, but he's going to make things completely new. He's going to wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He's doing something completely new. The good news is that God is going to wipe every tear away because there's not going to be any more death or mourning or reason to cry. No matter how incredible the opportunities are in this world, and if we're honest, there are some incredible opportunities in this world. Some of you have done some really incredible things. You have traveled to places because that's available to you. You've seen things that people just couldn't do a generation ago. But no matter how incredible the opportunities are that we get to experience today, there is always the shadow of the inevitability of death. I mean, hopefully we don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about that. It drive you crazy. But deep in the recesses of our mind, we know, we know that life is fragile. And so whatever good thing is happening in your experience, there's always that innate, innate fear rooted in us that something terrible could happen. Again, hopefully that's not at the forefront of our memory, but it's real. But the hope of Revelation chapter 21, the hope of God's future as articulated in the Bible is that a time is coming when this will not be the case anymore. God has a plan when he's going to make everything new, and in that newness, death is abolished. There's no more death to, 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 to bring fear. We'll be able to live lives eternally with God, as hard as that is to comprehend. We think about this, we have to ask ourselves, well, how is this, this possible? How is it possible that God is able and capable of doing this great thing, of really making all things new? And to answer that question, we have to go to Hebrews chapter 2 and verses 14 and 15, where we read these words. Since the children have flesh and blood, Jesus shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all of their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Hebrews chapter 2 and verses 14 and 15 is articulating this reality that we all deep inside the recesses of our being recognize the fragility of our own experience and our own existence. And so Jesus had to come and abolish that and abolish the idea of death, and he did that. He became nothing on our behalf. He became like us with flesh and blood, and he shared in our humanity, and then he died so that because of his death, the power of death might be destroyed. Jesus become, becoming human and dying enabled God to offer the same thing to us, resurrection life. Jesus died and was resurrected, and now we have the opportunity to receive the same kind of resurrection life. But Jesus' death did this. It, it did something. It, it, it changed the game. The old order of things was now already 
changed. God was working what he was going to work, and now he's enabled to do something that he, he didn't do before. Jesus' death and resurrection allowed God to, 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 to interject hope into the narrative, a hope that the world had, had never quite seen in this way before, that someone who had died to come back to life and to live eternally. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 20 that Jesus has been raised from the dead, the first fruits from those who have fallen asleep. He's the first of many to come. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all died, so in Jesus all will be made alive. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, the Apostle Paul writes. Death is going to, to, to die. Jesus' sacrifice counteracts the negative impact of the initial break between the relationship of God and humanity that goes back to Genesis chapter 3. God did something in Jesus that we could not do for ourselves. That, uh, that Pew study, when it asked people about heaven, it was rooted in the idea that this is a reward that good people get. Heaven is a reward that good people get. Is it possible but that the reason, the real reason, that the idea of a world to come, of a heaven to come, is so uncompelling is because people innately know that they're never, ever going to be good enough to gain it. I mean, if, you, if, you, if, if, you're, you're, if your achievement is going to be what makes you able to make it into the world to come, whatever you believe that to, to be, most of us innately know, I mean, don't get me wrong, there are some who have a very high opinion of, our, of themselves, but most of us innately know that our own abilities aren't doing it for us. And so when you feel like you're never going to be able to live up to what you need to live up to, the idea of heaven is going to be uncompelling because who can get there? 72% of Americans believe that heaven is a real thing, but that it's based on your good actions getting you there. And that heaven, that the world to come, that the future is a reward. Christian concept of the future is a gift, a gift from a God who has done everything he possibly can on our behalf so that we can have hope for a new future, not hope that comes from our own ability to get our act together, but hope that comes from his ability to do what we've never, ever been able to do. We have hope for a new future, and it's rooted not in our work, but in God's work on our behalf, and as we embrace that work, God is able to do in us what we cannot do for ourselves, not just in a distant future, far off or imminent, whatever you believe, but in our future now. As we embrace God's sacrifice on our behalf, as we embrace the work of Jesus, the one who came and died and rose again and was the first fruits. God starts doing his work in us, his resurrection work now, and our future now becomes transformed and changed. And yes, we have a hope of, a, uh, of an 
imminent, of an imminent coming of Jesus in a, a time when all things are made new and there is no more death anymore, but God wants to do his work in us now. And so the hope that we have for the future, the Christian concept of the future begins now as we embrace what God's done on our behalf. And then we hold out hope that along with that, Jesus is going to come back and the old order of things will go away. And we can live with a God who is dying and has died to make his dwelling with us. The cry of God's heart is that his dwelling will be with us and that we will live together with him with no more fear. Not based on our work, but based on his work in Jesus for us. If you feel today like you've been trying to get your act together so you can take part in your reward, that you can gain your reward, there's hope for you. You're not going to do it. You're going to fail. And it's going to be miserable. But there's one who's done something for you that you can never do for yourself. Embrace him today. That's God's call. Amen.